It's Christmas weekend. What better place to be than in God's house celebrating the gift of Christmas together as God's family? Now, did everybody get everything they wanted for Christmas this year? Yes? All right. Well, that's what we like to hear. Was there a lot of unwrapping that went on at your house? Yeah? Okay. There was at ours too. At our house, it was almost sheer pandemonium. I've got four kids. We had a lot of gifts. There were bows flying, ribbons snapping, paper tearing, and it was just chaos everywhere. And you know what? That's all right. That's cool. It was a good time watching them open it. They had a great time. And I noticed as we kind of went through our thing Christmas morning, the unwrapping of gifts, I was watching my kids and how they responded and reacted to the things that they had received. And as things began to wind down and the pile of gifts had shrunk down and there wasn't a whole lot left yet, you could kind of see the the intensity coming down just a little bit. And I noticed my three-year-old Katie, as she was looking around, she, she had gotten through all of her gifts and her brothers were still opening one or two. And she was beginning to search around through the piles and to look. Maybe there's one more. Maybe there's one more. She's searching around and she'd bring one over and go, Daddy, is this one mine? And I said, no, that's your brother Eli's. Oh, Daddy, is this one mine? No, no, that's James's there. Okay. And she'd go and sit down. And then I found one more kind of hidden back over there. And I said, Katie, look, there's one more gift here. And if you could have seen the excitement in her eyes... And as she screamed out, oh my goodness, only in about seven octaves higher than what I just did, the excitement was amazing. It, it was priceless. That's where I'm at this morning, because today we're going to unwrap the final aspect of the gift of Christmas. I'm excited to talk to you about it. We're going to look at this final piece of this passage, the Prince of Peace. We've studied for the last several Sundays this passage in Isaiah 9-6, talking about the gift of Christmas and what God has given to us in Christ. We've explored several things, and this morning we're going to look at this final piece. But just to recap for a minute here where we've gone so far, we saw in the beginning of our study that in unwrapping the gift of Christmas, my wait is over. Jesus has come. He is here now. Isaiah 9, 6 prophesied the coming Messiah, the birth of the Savior who would save us from our own sin. And he has now come. We've celebrated his birthday just a couple of days ago. That baby who was born in a manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes became the Savior of the world. And he is here. And my wait is over. And secondly, we saw that my way is also clear as we saw Jesus as our wonderful counselor, as our guide, as our leader, as the one who shows us the way and the path to salvation. My way is now clear because he is showing me the way. We also saw that my war is now finished because Jesus, who came as a baby born in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, would eventually go to a cross where he would pay the penalty for all of the sin of all mankind. And he defeated sin and Satan and death at the cross of Calvary. And now that war is finished. Jesus has won it for each and every one of us. For you and I and everyone in this room, Jesus has won peace. He has won the war. And we saw last week how my win is sure. Jesus is the everlasting father, the eternal God. He is eternal and in him I am as well. My win is sure because Christ is sure. And when I'm in him, I'm assured of eternal life. I'm assured of all the blessings that he has promised me in his word. Today, we're going to look at the final aspect and the final concept in this passage. We're going to see Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And we're going to see in that, my wish is fulfilled. Peace is something that I think each and every one of us are looking for. We've spent our whole lives searching for it, trying to find peace. And I'm convinced that most of us can't really put our finger on exactly what peace is. We know that there's something missing inside of us. We know that there is some sort of inner turmoil within us that needs to be solved. And most of us are pursuing the worldly pleasures, trying to fill that hole and that missing piece that's inside each and every one of us. Now, each of us are pursuing worldly pleasures in different ways, trying to fill in what God has intentionally left out of our lives. There is a God-sized hole in each and every one of us that God has intentionally placed there, and it is meant for it to be filled by him and him alone. But instead, you and I spend most of our time trying to fill it with other things. We try and fill it with money. We try and fill it with possessions. We try and fill it with pleasure or power. None of those things will ever bring us the peace that we're actually seeking for. Only the Prince of Peace can bring us the true peace that we desire. The true peace that we really need. 
And that's what I want to explore with you this morning, how the Prince of Peace, how Jesus Christ brings a true peace that is eternal, that is final, and that is complete. Now, pastor gave me this message a couple of weeks ago, and he gave me three words, and he gave me 45 minutes, Prince of Peace. So that's where we're going to go this morning. I've got some really exciting stuff on the meaning of the word of and how the way it's used in so many different places in the Bible. So buckle up and get ready. Here we go. First, I want to look at this word prince. What does that mean? Well, in short, prince means ruler. It means authority. It means someone who is in control, someone who is sovereign. But most often what it means is the son of a sovereign, the son of a king. The prince of peace, Jesus, we know, is the son of a king, the king God, the father. He is the son and all authority has been given to him as it is to a prince. While a prince is answerable to his father, the king, all authority in the kingdom is generally granted to him. And Jesus claimed that fact for himself in Matthew 28. He said, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Jesus has all authority. So we see in this passage that he is the authority of peace. But let's look at that word peace for just a minute. Most often I'm convinced that you and I think peace means the absence of conflict. And while it does encompass that idea, it means far much more. The word that we get in English, peace, is translated from a Hebrew word, shalom. And I'm sure most of you have probably heard that word at one time or another. It's a greeting that Arabic and Hebrew people use in greeting one another. It generally means peace. But it also encompasses the idea of completeness, of fulfillment, and of salvation. It's not that it's an either-or. It doesn't mean peace or fulfillment, peace or salvation. It encompasses all of them. It means all of those things. So when we say that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, we are saying that he is the authority of peace. He is the authority of completeness. He is the authority of salvation. Because in him there is no other salvation. He is the author of salvation. So I want to keep that context in mind as we go through our passage this morning. The scripture continues on in Isaiah 9-7. It's going to come up on your screen here in just a minute. And we're going to see what this peace of Christ is all about. I want to go through this passage here with you fairly quickly and just pull out a few points and see what it is that the Prince of Peace brings to the world and brings to each one of us who trust him, his Savior. The Prince of Peace offers a peace that first is expanding. Verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. The increase, the growth, the expansion of the peace that Christ offers has no end. It will continually expand until such time as Christ returns to this earth to take this throne. The prophet Isaiah, in writing down these words, has recorded things that would be yet future to him but are now, in fact, reality for us. And what we need to understand in our biblical interpretation here is that when prophets saw the future they didn't see things in time they saw the events and they saw the fulfillment of their prophecy but they didn't see them in time so we need to understand that some of the things we see here in verse 7 are things that are characteristic of Christ's first coming when he was born as a baby in that manger but they are also characteristic of his second coming that is still yet future to us The increase of his government, the expansion of his peace will continue until such time as he returns to this earth for a second time. It will continue to grow as more people place their faith and trust in him as Savior. And they receive the true peace that they are desiring and that they are searching for. But it's also a peace that is established. The passage says that he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it. God had made a promise to the nation Israel that a monarch would sit on the throne of David throughout eternity. That someone who was in the lineage and in the line of David would rule on that throne forever. That they would come from David. And we saw that fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is the seed of the woman. He is the descendant of David who reigns on that throne eternally. It has been established by God himself. And Christ sits on that throne. He reigns on it today from heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. But one day he will return to this earth where he will reign on earth with each and every one of us who have come to know him as personal Lord and Savior. Not only is this peace established, but it's also equitable. We want to understand that he will uphold this peace with justice and with righteousness. Christ will bring peace to the entire world. He will bring the absence of conflict and he will rule in peace. But it will be a peace that is far different from that that you and I know today. 
Today we live in a world that is corrupt, governments that are corrupt, things are not fair, things are not equal. Though many governments strive to be that, they can't accomplish it. When Christ reigns, it will be fair, it will be right, because Christ is the determiner of what is fair and what is right and what is good. He will uphold his government and his peace with justice. What does that mean? It means that each of us will receive what we are due. Those who have done good will be rewarded. Those who have done evil will be punished. He will uphold this peace with justice. No longer will those who do wrong escape their punishment that they deserve. No longer those who have done good will miss their reward because for whatever reason. When Christ is here and Christ reigns, he will uphold it with justice. Furthermore, he'll uphold it with righteousness. There won't be any any wrong in his reign. There won't be anything that is unfair, anything that is not equal or on a level playing field. Everything about this kingdom will be righteous. Everything about this peace will be righteous. It will be right because Christ is right. God is right in the determiner of right. It will also be an eternal peace. He says in the end of verse 7, from this time forth and forevermore, from the time that Isaiah the prophet saw this future prophecy coming to fruition and Christ being born and Christ ruling on this throne in the end he said from this time forth from the moment that I give you these words Christ is now reigning and he will continue to do so throughout all time he will continue until he returns to this earth where he will take the throne and rule with each and every one of us and that will continue on throughout eternity and finally we see that the peace that Christ brings is one that's ensured The end of verse 7 says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How will it be accomplished? How will it be brought about? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. By the sheer will of God the Father, this will be accomplished. There is no doubt. There is no confusion. This is an absolute. God the Father will bring this into being. It will be accomplished through him. Now the question then becomes for us, how can I then partake of this peace that Isaiah the prophet has prophesied about? How can I enjoy all of these things that I've just enumerated for you here? How can I enter that eternal kingdom to reign and rule with Christ? But also, how can I enjoy that true peace that I so desperately need today in my own life? And that's where we want to go this morning. We want to look at six points with you this morning and talk through the process for gaining true peace. Number one, true peace requires that I admit my condition. The Bible talks about the condition of all mankind, and most often it describes the condition of man in terms of separation. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, the prophet writes again about the condition of man. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. He's prophesying to the southern tribe of Judah here, and they are concerned that God has not heard their prayers, that that he's not responding to their needs. They're concerned about being overrun by their neighboring countries, and they're concerned about being overrun in war, and they're saying, we're crying out to God, but God's not hearing us. God's not responding. And the prophet corrects their thinking. He says, it's not that God can't hear you. It's not that God can't save you. That doesn't have anything to do with it. And he goes on to give him the answer in verse 2. He says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. It isn't that God doesn't hear. It's that your sin has caused a wall to go up between you and God. Your sin has blocked out your communication to God. And that is why he has not heard. And he continues, he says, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your sins have hidden his face. God looks away. God is so holy and so righteous that he cannot look upon sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He doesn't hear the prayers of those who are in sin, right? We've come to understand that. He has turned away because of the sin that has caused a separation between him and us. That separation began in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they took the bite of the forbidden fruit, that separation began at that point. And it continued on. As each and every one of us as descendants of Adam have inherited a sin nature and a sin guilt that has made a line of separation, a wall of separation between us and God. That is the condition that you and I live in today. Many of us are confused about that. Many of us are not willing to admit that that separation exists. 
We're not willing to admit that our sin, that our iniquity has caused a dividing wall between us and God. The second way the Bible talks about our condition is it describes it as a sickness. If you look at Jeremiah 17, 9, this prophet says this, God's speaking here in this passage, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Desperately sick. It says the heart. Each and every one of you has a heart. He's talking about the heart of man. It's something that is desperately sick. Turn to the person next to you, look them in the eye and say, you are sick. Go ahead. That's how the Bible describes it. You're sick. I'm sick. You're sick. We're all sick. The King James Version of the Bible, which several of you are probably looking at this morning, translates this word not sick, but rather wicked. Not only are you sick, but you're wicked. Tell your neighbor they're wicked. You're sick and wicked. That's your condition. Most of us aren't willing to admit that, however. Most of us think that we're, oh, we're just fine. My good's outweighing my bad. I'm doing okay. I'm not perfect, but I'm doing all right. Isn't that how most of us interpret it? I'm a good parent. I'm a good spouse. I'm a good employee. I give to charity. I pay my bills. I pay my taxes. I look out for old ladies in the street when I can. I'm mostly a pretty good person, right? And that should be good enough to get me to heaven. But the Bible describes even our best deeds, even our best acts as what? Filthy rags before God. God says, even the best that you bring to me and lay at my feet is nothing better than a filthy rag because you are desperately sick and you are desperately wicked. He continues on in the passage, it is so sick, who can understand it? We can't even fathom the depth of the depravity that resides in the human heart. That's how bad and how awful sin is. That's the condition in which I live. I have a heart in me that is deceitful. One that lies to who? Lies to other people? Lies to God? No. Lies to myself. My heart tells me that I'm okay. My heart tells me that I'm pretty good. My heart tells me that I'll make it in by the skin of my teeth. That's not how scripture talks about it. I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, you may weigh your good deeds in a positive light, but how do you think God the Father looks at those deeds? Filthy rags is what the Bible says about it. And it encompasses every single one of us. Me, you, everyone in this room, everyone outside in the world. Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us is included in this list. No one of us is any better than the other. Outside of Christ, we are desperately sick and wicked. And this separation and this sickness that you and I have has caused the sins to be placed upon our life. Isaiah 48, 22, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. There will be no peace. As long as you are separated, as long as you are in your sin, you will have no peace. We are looked at upon as enemies of God, opposed to God because of our sin. The sin that we commit and freely commit is an act of offense against a holy God. And God says, because of that, there is no peace for you. You will not have peace. You will not have reconciliation. You are separated from me by your sin. That is the condition in which you and I live. The sentence for that, Romans 6, 23 tells us, the wages of sin is death. Not only will you not have any peace or any reconciliation, but the sentence placed upon our lives is death because of the sin that is in our lives. Now, that's not very popular teaching today. You walk into a lot of churches today, you're not going to hear somebody talk about sin and hear somebody talk about the wages of that sin being death. It's Christmas weekend. Who wants to hear about that, right? But it's the truth, and it's biblical truth, and it needs to be proclaimed. Why? So that you and I can turn from that sin and be saved. And that's the joy and the conclusion of the rest of our message, that God has made a provision for us in order that we can have that peace and that we can be saved. So while our condition is horrible and awful, God has made a way for us to be saved out of it. And that's where we go next. We need to acknowledge God's provision. God hasn't left us in the pit of sin in which he found us, but rather he's made provision for us to get out of that pit. We need to acknowledge that it is God who has reached out to us, who has stuck his hand down into that deep pit and pulled us up out of that. We didn't do it on our own. We didn't earn our way out. We didn't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get it done. 
I know that conflicts with the American ideal, but it is in fact truth. God is the one who saves people. Salvation is of the Lord. He has chosen to save us out of his good grace and his love for us, not based upon anything that we did or may do. We need to acknowledge that it is God's provision in our lives that brings salvation and peace through the Prince of Peace into our lives. We need to first understand that in the provision that God made, a price had to be paid. The sin that we commit is an offense against God. It's not something that can simply be excused, can be washed away. God doesn't pretend like it never happened. That's not what sin is about. Sin brings about a punishment. The wage of that sin is death. That has to be paid by someone. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, the prophet again is prophesying, looking forward into what God would do to reconcile his people and to reconcile the situation in which they were living. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The crushing, the piercing, the pain, the suffering, the death, the crucifixion, all of those things that Jesus would experience on the cross served to do what? To bring us peace. That's what God was accomplishing in the work of Christ on the cross. God was doing two things at the cross. He was bringing about judgment upon sin because there was a wage that had to be paid. And he was bringing about judgment on that sin on Christ, he took the sin of all of us, you, me, and everyone here, and laid it on him. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Through the judgment that God brought on sin, we were delivered what? Salvation. You see, there's that word again, shalom, and that idea of peace, but of being more than just peace, including that concept of salvation. God was not only judging sin at the cross, but he was bringing about salvation. Through judgment, salvation always comes. Without judgment, there can be no salvation. There can be no peace. God must judge sin. All we like sheep have gone astray, the Bible says. We have turned everyone to his own way. Every one of us. All of us. No exceptions. We have turned to our own way. Rather than seeking after God and the peace that he offers, the true peace, we seek after self and selfish desires and pleasures in the world, and we try to fill that great hole that's inside of us with those pleasures. God says it will never work, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That vain searching that you and I do in temporal pleasures, all of that sin that we engage in trying to fill that hole that's inside of us, God has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. He's put it all on his account. And he's given us something in return. Secondly, we need to understand that a provision was made. Not only was a price paid, but a provision was made. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While you and I were deep down in that pit of sin, that pit of selfishness, deep down, dark, wicked, depraved, sick, God did what? He sent Christ, and Christ died for the ungodly. Christ didn't come and die for the good. God, Christ didn't come and die for the righteous. He came and died for the ungodly, for the sick and the depraved. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, it says. Would any of us die for an unrighteous person, for an evil person, for someone who didn't deserve it? Probably not. Many of us wouldn't even die for a good person. Many of us wouldn't even die for people who we hold most dear. But the passage continues, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As lowly and depraved and wicked as we are, God sent Christ in the world to die and pay a punishment that you and I so richly deserved. He gave us his best to save us out of that pit of sin and sickness and separation. When we were at our lowest, and most unlovable, God sent Jesus. Thirdly, a peace was earned. Colossians 1, 19 through 22. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The peace was earned at the cross. 
When the blood was shed on the cross, the peace was earned. As I said a moment ago, the sin carried a penalty. The sin carried a wage that had to be paid, that had to be satisfied. It was satisfied in Christ on the cross when his blood was spilled there. And he says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, that's all of us, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Though we were evil, though we rejected God, we said, God, you can keep it. We don't want it. God reconciled us through Christ, through his death, through his blood, in order to do what? To present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. God took our dirty, filthy nastiness, and he cleaned it all up, washed it all away, put that over here on Christ, and then we got from Jesus his righteousness. Why? So that Jesus could present us to God the Father as holy and blameless and above reproach. Why? Because of something I did? Because of a goodness that's within me? No, because of what Christ did. I inherited his righteousness. That was placed on my account. Jesus took away all my sin and all my depravity and put it on his side of the ledger and gave me his righteousness. That peace was earned based upon that so that he could present me holy, blameless, and above reproach. The Prince of Peace has brought this to pass. God has made a way for me to experience true peace, and it is through the cross of Christ. That brings up the question then, what must I do? How can I partake in this true peace that's available? Well, number one, I need to answer Christ's call. Christ is calling to each and every one of us. I have a duty to respond to that call that he has placed upon my life. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 uh, through 30 says, Jesus speaking here, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are laboring. Who is he talking to here? Is he talking to a bunch of people who are worn out and tired from working in the field? No. What is he talking about? He's talking about people who are tired and worn out from trying to earn it. The Hebrew people he was speaking to at this at this time, the Jews lived in a works-based society. They were trying to do all of these things according to the Jewish law, and they were trying to earn their way to salvation. Jesus is talking to those people, but by extension, he's talking to us as well. He's saying, all this work you're doing, all this effort you're putting in, all these things you're trying to do to be good, you're wasting your time. It's just going to wear you out. It's going to exhaust you. You'll become weighted down with the effort of trying to make yourself righteous. He says, instead, instead of working for it, let go. Give it to me. Come to me. I've already accomplished. And what will you receive for it? What does he say? Rest. I will give you rest. You know what another translation of that word is? Peace. I will give you the peace that you're looking for. So many of us, I'm convinced, are wrapped up in our daily lives of trying to earn it. We're trying to get something that we'll never be able to attain. And we're working and we're working and we're working and we're getting worn out and worn down until we finally just give up and say, you know what, forget it. I can't. I can't do it anymore. Jesus is talking to those people. He says, come unto me. Come to me. Let go of your burden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. What is a yoke? A yoke is a device that is used to more or less shackle two draft animals together. Big W-shaped thing. They put it on their back and they put these animals together so they can pull a plow or whatever they need to do. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. What does he mean there? He says, forget about what you're doing. Take my yoke, be shackled to me, and I'll do the hard pulling. I've already done it all. The work is done. Take upon my yoke and just, just come along beside you don't have to work for it anymore. You just have to respond. You have to come unto me. I will give you rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So many of us, I'm convinced, think that coming to faith in Christ and being a Christian is more work than living the way I live my life today. We think that it's a system of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts, and it's just too much work and it's not any fun. But that's not what Christ promises here in this scripture. He promises here that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's lighter than what you're doing now. Right now, you're trying to work for it. You're trying to earn it. Jesus is saying, don't earn it. Let go. Let me do it all. All I need you to do is come unto me to respond to my call. He is calling each and every one of us today. And we have a duty, each and every one of us, to respond to that call. 
And I do that by acting out in faith. How do I do that? Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells me. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What do I have to do there? I have to do two things. I have to, number one, believe, and I have to confess. It's not enough that I do one or the other. It's both. Verse 10, for with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. He's talking to two groups of people here. One group of people are those who want to believe that Jesus is Lord. They make that intellectual agreement with the facts of the gospel. Okay, maybe a guy named Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, and yeah, maybe he went and died on a cross. All right, I'm with you there. Maybe he even died for my sin. Okay, I'm with you there. But how does that get appropriated into my life? It's not enough to make an intellectual agreement to a set of facts. I have to, as we said a minute ago, admit my condition. I have to admit and understand that I need something in this transaction. Why did Christ come and pay my penalty on the cross? Because I needed to be saved. The problem is, is that many of us today believe that Christ did these things, but we don't really believe that we need to be saved. We think that we're okay. We're doing just fine. But the scripture doesn't talk that way. It says you have to believe it in your heart, meaning I have to understand that I am the one who needs to be saved, but I also have to confess it out with my mouth. I have to speak it out. I have to make that proclamation. So many of us, I think, want to become saved and, and we pray a prayer, but we go back to our life and it really doesn't produce any transformation. We don't look or act any differently than we did before. We haven't confessed it with our mouth. And it's not just saying one time to a gathering of people, oh, I got saved. Jesus is Lord. That's not what it means. What he's conveying here is that there needs to be life change. There needs to be life transformation. By your actions, by your behavior, by your attitude, I should be able to look at your life and realize, hey, you're different. You're not the same as you used to be. What happened to you? That's what it means to confess him as Lord, to speak it out, not only with words, but to show it by my actions and my behaviors and my attitudes. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. I am found not guilty of my sin when I believe. God justifies me. He takes a look at all that sin that I've committed and he gives that to Christ. And instead, he imputes to me Christ's righteousness. I get something in this transaction that I didn't have before, and I jettison something that I never wanted in the first place. There's something that happens here. I am justified before God. I am declared innocent, not because I didn't do it, not because God is pretending that it didn't happen, but because Christ paid the penalty for it all, thereby bringing about the peace that we're looking for. I have to put action to my words. It's not simply enough to make a profession. Hundreds and thousands of people do that. They make a profession every day and then go back to living their normal everyday life. There has to be action. Things have to change. Once I have made this confession, once I have acted out in faith and I have trusted Christ as my Savior, I've received the peace that he has promised, I then need to affirm my new position. I'm something new before. The passage said a moment ago that I am justified by believing in my heart. I am not the same thing that I was before. I'm not the same person that I was before. I have several new things that have now come into my life when I trust in Christ as my Savior. Number one, I have a new righteousness. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, there it is again, that belief in my heart leads to justification. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is granted to me based upon what I believe and my justification in him. I receive a new righteousness. My sin has passed to the other side of the ledger. It's been put on Christ's account, and I've instead received his righteousness, and it's been put on my account. So that when God the Father looks at me on that day of judgment that's yet in the future for every one of us, when he looks at me, he will see Christ's righteousness rather than my desperately sick and wicked condition. I am granted that in this transaction. I am justified and I inherit a new righteousness. I also gain a new relationship. The passage continues in verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Before you and I came to faith in Jesus, before we received that peace that he has promised to us, we didn't have any access to God the Father. Our prayers would go up and they would hit the ceiling and bounce back down. We had no access to God the Father, but by the grace that has been granted to us through our justification, through our belief in Him, we have now gained access 
to God the Father. We have inherited a new relationship. I have something now that I didn't have before. Before I was a believer, God was in fact the sovereign of the universe, the rule of all things. But as a believer now, I've gained a new relationship. God is now my father. It's a familial relationship. It's the same as what you would have in an earthly relationship with your father. Someone you can call upon. Someone who can help you in your times of difficulty and in your times of distress. Someone in whom you want to share your joys and your blessings and your celebrations and your successes. It's a new relationship. It's something far different than what I had before. I don't just get my sin wiped away and then go on living my life the way I was before. But rather I inherit this new relationship. I gain a a partner, a leader, a director. I gain a heavenly father who leads and directs my steps, who is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Someone to share my life with, someone to direct me where I go. I have a new relationship that is new and powerful and bold and life-altering and life-changing. And it makes something new in me. I gain this new relationship through my belief in him. The passage continues, and we also rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We gain access into his throne room. We gain access to a new relationship, but we can also now rejoice. Peace has been granted. The suffering is over. I have a new relationship. I am at peace. We rejoice not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been... Let me turn the page here. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now I have a sense of joy in my heart. Not only have I been given a peace, but I've also been given joy. A joy that allows me to rejoice in my sufferings. When difficulties come along, when struggles come along, job losses, financial problems, relational issues... You fill in the blank, whatever they are, when they come along, I have a partner now and I can rejoice in my suffering. That suffering has been brought about because of my relationship with God. I'm able to persevere through my difficulties because of this new relationship with God. Whereas before, when it was just me and I was all alone and difficulties would come along and I would nearly collapse or give up or give in, throw in the towel. Now I have this Heavenly Father who is working on my behalf who is giving me peace and joy through my times of struggle, who's enabling me to endure and to persevere. It's a new position for me. It's something wholly different than I was before. Rather than depending on self, I can now depend on God. I can now depend on God through the work of Christ. This brings me into a new relationship. But also I have a new reconciliation. Continuing on in verse 9, "...since therefore we have now been justified by His blood..." much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We've been justified by his blood. We've been reconciled unto him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. When we were in that pit of sin and depravity and death that God pulled us out of, he did that while we were at our lowest. He brought us up out of that pit, that pit of depravity. He sent his son to die when we were most worthless. How much more will we inherit blessing and life through him now that we are reconciled? Reconciliation is what fixes everything. We are divided and separated from God. We are divided by that sickness called sin that has put up that dividing wall between us. But now in Christ and through belief in Christ, I've been reconciled back to God. Where I was originally, where God intended for me me to be before sin entered the picture. I have been reconciled unto him. Many of you have probably been separated from a member of your family or a friendship at one point or another in your life. And you remember how great it was if you had an opportunity for reconciliation with that person. The reconciliation is, it far exceeds the separation. While the separation was painful, the joy of the reconciliation is immense. It overcomes all. Many people are reconciled over, uh, in marriages, in family relationships, amongst uh, siblings or with children. And that joy that comes through reconciliation is amazing. And it, the blessing from it impacts our entire lives. And that's what God is saying is going on here with the reconciliation through Christ. He says, not only did I save you from the pit of sin to raise you up, but now I have reconciled you unto myself so that you inherit an even greater blessing. It will affect your whole life. It will transform everything about you. 
More than that, verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received our reconciliation. Not only do I have joy through my sufferings, not only do I have joy in the reconciliation that has been produced between me and God the Father, but now I have joy and I rejoice in the work that Christ has done. The one who has reconciled me, the one who has paid the price, the one who has brought peace into my life. The joy and the reconciliation is immense. I am not the same. I need to understand when the Prince of Peace introduces that peace into my life, I am not the same. I am something wholly and completely different. I have been transformed into something new. I need to affirm my new position. I need to have that take positive actions in my life. I need to live out what I am now. Becoming a Christian, becoming saved, becoming transformed does not mean that I pray a prayer, make a statement, and then go back to living life the way that I was before. It means that I'm wholly and completely different. I am transformed. That should be evident in my life. People in the world should be able to see the transformation that has come about in my life. They should recognize that something is different, and they should recognize it in a positive way. You're different. She's different. He's different. Why? Because of Jesus. He has done something. He has brought that person the peace that they have been looking for their entire lives. I need to affirm my new position by letting that play out in the actions that I take in my life. That new position also should lead me to adopt a new attitude. I'm not the same as I was before. My attitude should be different as well as my actions. Jesus was speaking to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion about this very concept. He says, I have given you peace. That should change the way you live your life. That should give you comfort in times of struggle. That should give you relief from the struggle that you're in. In John 14, 27, Jesus is talking about this kind of peace. And it's a kind of peace that should be a contrast with the world's peace. The world is seeking after peace today. I think we all agree with that. I don't know if any of you were able to catch any of the presidential debates that went on the last couple of weeks, but peace was the main topic. Mostly the candidates were discussing and debating what is the best way to bring peace into the world. And it went the whole spectrum. On one end, we've got one guy that wants to bomb everybody back into the Stone Age. That's the best way to bring peace is to just utterly destroy them where they're unable to make war or bring terror anywhere. At the other end of the spectrum, we've got a candidate who simply thinks they need a hug. That if we just love them more, they wouldn't hate us. You decide where you're at, but there were positions all the way in between. Everyone has an idea of how they think peace should be brought about in the world. The problem is, is that none of those ideas are going to work. And that's what's so frustrating about sitting through those things and watching those debates and hearing them talk about it because true peace is never going to be available by the way man seeks to accomplish it. True peace is only available through God and through the peace that he brings through Christ. Right? God promised that the people in the Middle East would always be at war. We talked about that in Genesis 14, I believe, several weeks ago. The pastor preached that these people would constantly be at war with everyone. We're not going to change that. God is going to change that. When he gets a hold of them and transforms them and makes them something new again, then peace will come. When Christ returns to the earth and takes his throne, then peace will come. Now, that doesn't mean that we should sit on the sidelines and not do anything. Don't misunderstand me. But it does mean that true peace is never going to come through the actions of man, through bombing or through hugging or whatever it is. True peace is not going to come that way. Jesus said, I give you the true peace. I give you the peace that gives you the ability to endure. Put your trust and faith in me. Don't trust in other men and their ideas and the things that they're seeking to accomplish, but look only toward me. It is my peace that I give to you, and it is my peace that will give you comfort. If you're looking toward presidential candidates or any other politician or world leader to bring peace and give you a sense of security, you'll, I'm sorry, you'll never find it. They will never bring that to you. It is only available in Christ. And Jesus talked about this very idea in John 14, 27. Speaking to his disciples the night before his crucifixion, he says, peace I leave with you. I'm going away, I'm going to the cross, but with you I leave peace. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives it, but as I give it. 
My peace is something far different. My peace is the kind that transforms lives. My peace is the kind that fills that great hole that's missing inside of you. My peace is the kind that lets you persevere in life. My peace is the kind that helps you endure the day-to-day struggles of your life. This is the peace that I leave with you. When I go away, I leave you this peace. Therefore, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do not fear, do not be anxious, do not be worried, do not doubt. Why? Because Christ has granted you peace. If you know him as your savior, he has granted you peace. Does that mean that you'll never experience difficulty or struggle in your life again? Absolutely not. I'd be lying to you if I said that. What it does mean is the peace that Christ has granted is one that gives you the ability to persevere. One that gives you the ability to live your life in assurance that God is in control. That I will be saved. That everything is going to eventually be okay. Because God is going to set everything right. And he sought to do that through Christ. This discussion continues on a couple of chapters later in John 16, 33. Jesus tells his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Everything that he has gone on for two chapters talking about in the Olivet Discourse, all of the things that would happen, I've told you all of these things so that in me you will have peace, that you can rest assured, that you know these things will be accomplished. Remember, it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that is going to accomplish this. It's ensured that it will happen. It's going to happen. And Jesus says, I've told you all of these things so that you can have peace, so that you can operate from a place of relief and of assurance. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He promised his disciples that they would have difficulty in suffering, that it wouldn't be easy. But he said, I have overcome the world, meaning the peace that I have, the peace that I've given to you now, will help you to overcome the world. You can endure, you can persevere because you have the peace that I have brought to you. The peace that is brought only by the blood of Jesus on that cross. The peace that is only available when I answer that call that he's placed upon my life. A peace that is far different from anything that our world is offering today. A new attitude also involves my conduct in the world. Not only should the peace I have be in contrast with that of the world, but the peace that I have should govern my conduct in the world as well. Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The Apostle Paul's writing here under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and he's telling his people here to let the peace of Christ rule. This peace we've spent the last half hour talking about, let that rule in your life. This word rule here means to be the determining factor, to make the determination. It has the idea of a call that an umpire makes. Okay, when you steal home and you slide in and that umpire says you're safe, you're safe. It doesn't matter. He's made the call. It's been determined. You're safe. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let peace be the determining factor for your life. Operate from a place of security, a sense of assurance. Operate from a condition of peace. Knowing that I have been reconciled to God allows me to endure all things. The Prince of Peace has now brought into my life something that allows me to operate my life with a sense of security. Finally, that thing I've been seeking for all of my life, that thing that I have chased after trying to earn more money, to gain more power, to buy more insurance, that security I've tried to find in a person, in a relationship, whatever it may be, that thing I've been looking for all my life, Christ has given to me. He's given it to me as a free gift, and it is that peace that I am to allow to rule my heart, to rule my outlook, to rule my actions and attitudes and behaviors. If I operate from a sense of peace that should play out in my actions and in the way I live my life, people in the world should see that. The apostle says, let that rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. You were called to this peace all the way back to the beginning. Looking at our sin condition, when God reached down into that pit and he took your hand and he pulled you up out of that pit, he called you into something new. He called you into a new relationship. He called you into a new peace that you couldn't get anywhere else. And that peace will transform your life and it will make you something completely different. And it is by that peace which you should let your life be dictated, to let your life be determined. Those who are experiencing true peace 
do not look the same as the rest of the world. The world out there, the people out there in the world are chasing after a dollar. They're chasing after power and fame and fortune and domination. It will never bring them to peace. It will never bring it to them. Jesus says, I am the true peace. I am the prince of peace. I grant that which you've been looking for. Those who've experienced that new peace have a new attitude. And they have a new outlook on life. And they have a new way in which they operate. The Prince of Peace has brought all of this about for each and every one of us, for you and I, for those all of us in this room today, that peace is available. That thing that you've been searching for and seeking for all of your life is here. All you have to do is respond and reach out and take it. The question becomes, have you unwrapped the gift of Christmas? It's Christmas week. The gift of Christmas is Christ. Have you unwrapped that gift? Have you come to know him as your personal savior, as your Lord? Are you experiencing the true peace that he promises that is only available in him? Or are you still out there searching for it in the world? Are you still searching for it in worldly pleasures and in money and possessions and all of that other stuff? That stuff that really never brings true security. Might bring some temporal pleasure. Might bring some interim security, but it never brings true peace. Are you still looking for it out there in the world? Or have you realized the true peace that's only available in Christ? We need to understand that he's calling. He is calling each and every one of us today. Right here in this room, right here in this chair where you sit, Christ is calling to you. He's saying, come unto me, those of you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I will grant you that peace that you've been looking for all of your life. Let's pray.